what I'm going to be talking about is uh, the, the ways in which the East Asian countries have responded to this in an institutional sense. So uh, I'm not looking at, it, this isn't a comparative politics paper at all, it's uh, very much an international, uh, international relations IPE paper. Uh, as I was listening to uh, some of the papers, uh, some of the presentations today, I thought maybe I should have done something on the ways, looking at the ways in which individual countries uh, did uh, respond, but uh, that only gets touched on a little bit. Uh, so uh, this is beginning to be something that I spend a lot of time talking about, uh, and so um, to some extent I, I try to repeat myself and then sometimes I'm not sure how much I want to hear myself. So if, I, if something doesn't make sense, please by all means ask for, um, uh, for clarification. So what, I, what I'm doing is, is uh, I start from the fact that the East Asian countries after the Asian financial crisis um, went about trying to recreate uh, a regional financial architecture in a very ambitious way, or at least the, the larger of the plans were, were very ambitious. And there are, a whole series of, of things that happen. Uh, and we see the, as the elements of financial regionalism, there's uh, uh, a, an organization that's put in place to try to provide for emergency liquidity provision, which is the Chiang Mai Initiative. Uh, it's sort of the functional heir of the proposed Asian Monetary Fund, although as I've uh, argued elsewhere ad nauseum, although I'm sure that most of you haven't had any particular reason to read it. Uh, the um, uh, it's not really the Asian Monetary Fund. It's a very, it's a very different animal. Uh, but functionally, it's meant to provide uh, money in the case of an emergency. There's some bond market development schemes, which frankly are not going to have a lot uh, of effect. There's a lot of discussion about currency uh, coordination, which I didn't even put in there because uh, really it's, uh, it's quite nascent. Um, and then there's been quite a bit of discussion about surveillance. And over time, the surveillance story has gotten... Um, sort of uh, put into the emergency liquidity provision uh, uh, thing in a way that, that um, I'll explain in just a little bit. Uh, so the, uh, there's a couple points that I want to uh, emphasize about the ways in which the, uh, the East Asian countries have made it through the, uh, the financial, this financial crisis. Uh, and also in the ways in which this, uh, this financial regionalism uh, has been organized. And, and the most striking thing about the way it's organized is although it was put forward as a, a response to uh, the problems of vulnerability to globalization, um, excessive financial globalization, what the, uh, what the, the Japanese like to call uh, market fundamentalism, um, the most striking thing about the way it's actually organized is that it, uh, it's nested within the global architecture. Uh, and, and in that sense, let me step back to this relationship between coordination and surveillance, and then we'll, we'll uh, come back to it a couple of times around. So uh, if you're going to have an emergency liquidity provision mechanism, I know that sounds very poetic, but if you're going to have such a mechanism, we have one at the global level, we call it the IMF. Uh, for countries that are unfortunate enough to be small enough not to print their own money, uh, at least print their own internationally usable money. Uh, and the, the problem of, of emergency liquidity provision is the same one that, that you have in any sort of uh, bailout, right? Is that if there's certainty of a bailout, 
then borrowers, uh, potential borrowers, are much less likely to act in a, in a responsible manner, however we uh, define this. But it's a moral hazard question, right? And so the ways in which uh, you deal with moral hazard, to, you try to eliminate the problem of moral hazard while still ensuring that emergency money comes through, is uh, what I call in, in this paper is it's got to be either ex-ante um, uh, conditionality or ex-post conditionality. Uh, what the IMF does is, uh, we're, is and we're quite familiar with, is uh, ex-post conditionality. Uh, you can't do anything about the fact that the country got into a crisis, but hey, uh, we're going to add some, uh, put some conditions on it to make sure that the money is spent wisely and it doesn't just go down a rapid. Uh, and over time, countries that get repeated IMF um, uh, plans uh, have ended up in something that looks much more like ex-ante uh, 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 ex-ante conditionality as well. Uh, what surveillance, now the, the IMF and other organizations, and, and you certainly know much more about the way this has happened in the European Union with the Growth and Stability Pact, uh, it's a form of, of ex-ante uh, conditionality. They're saying, uh, they're trying to, to create a, a set of, of standards, kind of a standard that you have to hit in order to get money. Uh, and if you don't get money, uh, if, you, if you don't qualify for, you know, whatever largesse, then you have to go to the bad guys at the IMF. Uh, and that's, uh, that's sort of, I know that's not exactly the way it works in, in the EU, uh, but it's kind of the way it ended up working with Greece. Uh, although not extremely well, as it turns out, because surveillance rather completely failed. So, uh, so what the, the, the people who want, are wanting to turn this thing into an Asian monetary fund independent of the IMF rather than triggered by the IMF uh, have, been, uh, have been looking to create better surveillance. And, and I deal with, uh, with people who, who are interested in this. A lot of them are policy economists. And they talk about how do you get better surveillance? How do you get better programs to make sure that, that you know, countries understand that if you aren't behaving in a responsible manner, if you're going to bring this crisis on on yourself, you're on your own. We're not going to make this money available. It's very difficult to do when you're talking about a group of 13 countries of whom, oh, let's call it six, don't count. Uh, the, the, what we call in, in East Asia the uh, BCLMV countries. Um, Brunei, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Myanmar, Vietnam. Okay, so that's five, excuse me. Uh, so, um, but they, they're really quite irrelevant to the story. And let's face it, the Philippines is not going to, and Indonesia are not going to be a big part of rescuing anybody. So we come down to what is, who's funding this thing? And it's the Japanese and the Chinese. Uh, and neither one of them is really interested in uh, imposing conditionality. Okay, so the, the first way this thing is set up is through a series of bilateral swaps. Uh, and they, they, it's, it's kind of cool. It looks like a yurt. Uh, I suppose, um, and that's that's a nice little thing. But the, one of the key points to note is that um, is that the trigger for most of the funds has been that the country is stepping into negotiations with the IMF, good faith negotiations. Um, at its core, Chiang Mai is designed to provide uh, bridging funds until or to you know, it might turn off that all they need is bridging funds to maybe to prevent the need for an IMF uh, bailout, but or to wait until you have an IMF bailout to slow things down, and complementary funds as well. It's very clearly 
uh, set up to be complementary. And the, the big discussion has been, is this an intermediate stage on the way to the nation monetary fund or is it not? Uh, okay, so part of what's motivating uh, where I'm at is that um, I wrote a book uh, and now people think I'm wrong. So let me talk a little bit about this. We have, uh, well, we have a, a crisis. And what could you ask for that's better than a crisis if you want to test something that's meant to deal with the crisis? Uh, now, we know that the transmission mechanisms the last time around had to do with hot money flows, you had trade effects, you had access to development credit. Practically speaking, the only one of these that really hit the Asians this go-around is trade effects. Um, it hasn't injured Asia. Uh, and what we see is in East Asia, in particular, exchange, exchange rates adjusted. Financial institutions were uh, managed uh, uh, domestically. Um, and then, of course, we have the Greek crisis, which is something that, that uh, we need to think about a little bit. One of the, the, the key stories to bear in mind with the, with the Asian, with the Asian version, East Asian version of the global crisis is not that East Asia is unaffected. All right? East Asia is very severely affected. Uh, among the developed countries, uh, Japan noses out Germany for the biggest drop in GDP in a single quarter. Uh, but none of the Asian financial systems is affected. None of the East Asian countries suffers a currency crisis. None of the East Asian studies the East Asian countries suffers a solvency crisis. All of the East Asian countries, and by all I mean all the way down to Cambodia, I didn't look at Laos, uh, all of the East Asian countries put in very substantial fiscal stimulus plans, um, and in many cases monetary stimulus plans like China. Uh, and they move out of it fairly quickly. Uh, and so the crisis doesn't actually challenge them directly uh, based on what I call the self-help policies that were already in place, for the most part. Um, now, the response, though, is multilateralization. Um, and you have this, this shift over to a, a system with formal voting weights, and you have these are the financial contribution and a purchasing multiple, and so uh, Japan's putting in $38 billion, and they can get up to half of that, so they can get up to $19 billion if Japan has a currency crisis and, you know, Philippines are there. Uh, Really, what we're looking at is the ASEAN five. So, uh, you know, Indonesia, uh, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, they each put in uh, four and three quarters billion. That means that, uh, what does that come out to? About $14 uh, billion that they have access through uh, to through this thing. And there's a weighted voting for disbursement of funds. And so, my uh, people who, criti who, who criticized my work got very excited and they told me I was wrong. So, my first response was, I may have been wrong, but but they're making a big mistake. And then I looked at it, and it turns out I wasn't wrong. Uh, you know, for, for the moment, at least. Uh, and uh, I think what, what we need to do is to, uh, in order to understand what's going on, uh, and, and I'm going to, to step into two specific uh, examples in, in a couple minutes, but uh, let's just note, so there's reserve pooling. This is actually um, uh, a commitment of funds, standard contract, but uh, it's not a reserve pool in, in the sense of we put all our money into a pool that the, that the BIS is managing. Um, that exists in a very small level, and it's not this. Um, the, um, 
the thing that, that is most striking is the IMF link persists. The IMF link persists. We now vote. Two thirds, uh, you have to have a two thirds majority in order to get uh, in order to get a loan, uh, a disbursement, an automatic disbursement of all these countries' uh, money. But you don't even vote until the IMF is negotiated. Don't even vote. It's still linked to the IMF. Uh, there is talk about improving surveillance. There's even the ERPD is uh, what in a former life when I was a grad student, I was studying the Plaza Louvre period, uh, G5 coordination, G7 coordination, we called multilateral surveillance with objective indicators, which also didn't work. Uh, and uh, AMRO is uh, uh, the, uh, the Asian Macroeconomic Research Organization, which doesn't exist yet, which is supposed to be sort of a mini OECD monitoring or almost IMF staff monitoring thing. Uh, but in the end, um, I, I, I argue this is really quite a bit of a, of a red herring because the problem is not knowing, it's not a monitoring issue, it's an enforcement issue. And what are the circumstances under which the, the primary countries, Japan and China, are going to say, go to hell to a neighbor in need? And which is what you have to do in order, you have to have the credibility that you might do that in order to avoid moral hazard, right? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know the conditions under which they would do that. Probably they wouldn't. Maybe they would. The one thing about an emergency liquidity provision mechanism is that it has to be certain. And each side has to be certain as well. And so basically, it, 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 the, the IMF link remains as, a, as an, uh, uh, an almost unavoidable part of this because there's no good alternative. If, if China and Japan could simply cooperate and, uh, uh, and know that the other one would do exactly what it said in a crisis, no problem. Uh, but the opportunities for gamesmanship and uncertainty are too high. Uh, and so to me, this is, uh, uh, it's going to be very difficult to shift away from here. By the way, in terms of surveillance, one of the big questions is, what are the standards of surveillance? How do we understand whether a country is being irresponsible, bringing trouble on itself. Well, we have a set of standards. It's called IMF surveillance. It sometimes works. I read the uh, IMF surveillance report on Greece from 2009. It's very good. The only problem was that all of the things that they were warning about, and, and quite rightly, uh, it turns out that they were four percentage points off because of accounting, right? That the, the Greeks lied. Right? This is well known. The Greeks simply lied about their balance sheet, uh, which uh, you know, the IMF folks didn't actually catch on to. So you know, if they were worried in 2009 based on what they, what they thought they knew, imagine how worried they would have been if they knew what they were supposed to do. All right? so, uh, but the problem of, of standards is what happens when you have separate standards? It creates confusion. Right? Are you talking about... So, the only way to handle it is to have a single set of standards. Um, and uh, what you were talking about then is we are as a group of 13 countries, including with all due respect to, to the Laotian people and their fine history, Laotian economists, uh, Myanmarese economists, uh, etc. We're going to be using IMF standards to do the same thing that the IMF is doing. What's the value add? 
it's not clear that there is any value added. Now, I have colleagues, I don't know if they're friends anymore, uh, I'm not sure that they like me very much anymore, uh, who, who are trying to come up with standards. But, uh, you know, the last thing you want is to have uncertainty at this point. And so we keep falling back, unless you have a separate set of standards and a separate trigger, um, you keep falling back to the IMF. Um, and I, I want to just make a, a couple of quick points that show some of the reasons why this is, this system uh, is not going to fundamentally challenge the, uh, the global system. And uh, we have two cases. Uh, one, I'm going to assume that I probably know better than the rest of you, uh, which is Korea. Um, and what happens, an extraordinary thing happens in Korea in, um, in the fall of 2008. They have $200 billion in reserves, and they get scared. They don't get a little bit scared, they get quite scared. And they get scared enough that they go and they do something about it. And it seems like a minor thing, but they, they set up a swap line with the, with the Fed, an emergency swap line with the Fed for $30 billion. Um, but what's, what's remarkable about it, uh, and, and the Fed, uh, there was also a swap, a swap lines announced on the same day with um, uh, Brazil, Singapore, I think we set up one with Australia and New Zealand the day before. Some of it is, is you know, mired in the mysteries of the international dateline as to you know, which happened what day. But uh, in any event, you do have these things happen. Um, but you have a crisis of confidence despite the foreign exchange reserves. And how do you deal with the crisis of confidence? You don't do it through the Chiang Mai Initiative. For one thing, you know, it would be a disaster to go to the IMF, but you don't even do it through your Chiang Mai partners. You do it through, in crisis, where it really push comes to shove, you go to the only place that matters with regard to perfectly credible supply of dollars, the U.S. Fed. Um, and this is, I think, a, a very striking role uh, of the uh, confirmation of the global role of the U.S. dollar and a reminder of how difficult this whole decoupling exercise is even when, I mean, the, the most striking thing about this, I, I think, is 2008, October of 2008, where our fine representatives in the Congress had only weeks before almost thrown the country into depression by voting down something that was, you know, distasteful but unavoidable. Uh, and then had to backtrack and vote back on the exact same bill and say, yeah, I guess we didn't mean it after all. The weakest point in American financial history since the 1930s, and what does a country do to save itself? It turns to the U.S. and gets dollars from us that you know, may be worth nothing later on. Greece. And I think Greece is, uh, Greece is, is, is makes my, my point about surveillance almost too easily. It almost makes it not worth doing the paper, in a sense, because, uh, okay, macroeconomic policy coordination is always difficult. And this is my last slide. Uh, macroeconomic policy coordination is always difficult. Uh, there are very, very few examples that any of us can come up with in which it's been successful. Uh, and I say this advisedly, having studied all of the G5 things pretty closely. The only examples I can think of are ones in which there's a, a, a currency leader, a clear hegem, uh, hegemon, uh, and the others have no choice. Okay, so macroeconomic policy coordination is always difficult. The only example, the only good example of something else is the EU. It's the best example of rule-based coordination. 
Moreover, the EU, as you guys know much better than I, is an extraordinary edifice of rules and institutions and issue linkages and norms and uh, cross-cutting this and that and uh, more levels of bureaucracy than, than anything I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and somehow, even in the EU, even with the strictest guards against the likelihood of being able to borrow from the central bank, Greece manages to screw it up. And Greece manages to get bailed out. And, and, and Greek domestic politics trump all of their regional commitments. And uh, you know, to end with this, uh, uh, I have uh, two quick points. One is East Asia is not the EU. East Asia has nothing close to the kinds of issue linkages, bureaucracy, rules, norms, uh, governance, etc. Uh, so surveillance is, is, you know, if surveillance doesn't work in, in, uh, in the EU, where on earth can it possibly work? Basically, it's hard to think where it might. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just going to finish up with one last final little thought, which is I've been sort of focusing on the, the regional versus global. But really, one of the things we have to step back and think about when we're talking about regional financial architectures uh, is national. Uh, and so much of the story of how the East Asian countries make it through the crisis so relatively smoothly uh, is, is the, the issue of self-help. Um, and although so much of the attention in, uh, in terms of, not your attention, but where I am, uh, the, the 15 people and you know 200 government officials who care about Chiang Mai uh, multilateralization, uh, focusing on this story of regionalism. But actually, what we're seeing is a story in which self-help prevails in the shadow of the global system. So, thank you. I think I did 20 minutes.